tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. I got a question. I can't get into my my call screen because I typed in the wrong super code, and now they won't let me. You know, I think we should all go back to goose quill pens and carrier pigeons. At least carrier pigeons are edible. I'm just kidding. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, let's open the big book on the coffee table. At least I know how that works. Aye. Okay, let's see here. What do we got? What do we got? Where did I put the... Hold on. Oh, that's the wrong... I, I, I don't know. Me and computers. Moving along. We're going to do the, the readings of the day. And I, I may get to the, the readings for the feast. I'm sure all of you understand that, that there are readings... Um, that are from the cycle of readings that take us through the Bible, sort of in a, a, a sporadic kind of way, but um, they, the readings follow a pattern. But then for feast days and, and memorials, we have special readings. So you can do either one, uh, depending on what is appropriate. And I usually do the readings that are in the schedule of readings, unless, of course, you are required for a feast or, or especially a solemnity to to read the reading for the day. But I'm looking at this at this uh, passage today because it's very, very interesting. Let's go to the gospel first, because everyone gets upset about this. And I, I just, I'll just, this is nothing you haven't heard if you listen to me regularly. So the, the, um, Gospel is Mark 6, 1, 6. Jesus departed from there and came to his native place, accompanied by his disciples. When Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many were astonished. Where did he get all this? Isn't he the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Well, that means clearly that some people say, and we don't, that Mary and Joseph, after Jesus was born, had a a normal um, relationship. They did not. Jesus had people who were called his brothers. It does not say they were the children of our Blessed Mother. And it is clear that our Blessed Mother had only one son. She stood alone at the cross, accompanied only by 
some women and, and John, the beloved disciple. And Jesus said to John, who was probably a, a relative of his, take care of my mother. And she lived, the scripture says she lived with him for the rest of her life. Uh, that, that John uh, took care of the Blessed Mother, and had she other children, it would have been their responsibility, almost to the point of law. Um, it's such a strong custom. You would never have a more distant relative take care of your mother unless there was some real extenuating circumstance. Well, <clears throat> we look at James, and well, let's look. This is kind of an interesting to look at. Uh, the Marys at the foot of the cross, uh, there were a lot of Marys. I mean, I, I think I've shared with you that the, the Jews at the time of Christ were as as uh, conversant with the name Mary as were the Irish of the 1950s, you know, Mary Bridget, Mary Catherine, Mary Hand. And, well, there are, there are a lot of Marys in the gospel. We read about Mary, the mother of Jesus, of course, our blessed mother. Then Mary Magdalene. Then Mary of Jacob, who was the mother of James the Less. And we see that in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six and other references. Then there's Mary of Clopas. And the tradition is that Clopas was a relative of Joseph. Uh, and she is sometimes identified with the Mary, Mary of Jacob. Then you have Mary of Bethany, who is the sister of Lazarus. So you've got these people standing at the foot of the cross, all of whom are named Mary. And uh, we read about Mary, the mother of James and Joses, uh, which is a way to say Joseph. So in the West, we maintain that, that uh, <clears throat> these were children of essentially someone who would have been thought of as Jesus' aunt and uncle. Um, in the East, they refer to the Proto-Evangelion of St. James, and uh, which is an early 2nd century document, probably, uh, that, that the, this, these, uh, these sons of, these brothers of Jesus were sons of uh, Joseph by a first marriage. His first wife died. He was older, the Blessed Mother having taken a Nazarite vow uh, of chastity, uh, would have been given into his care, being an older relative uh, who was responsible. That's what they maintain in the Eastern Church, and in the Western Church we tend to believe that that they were um, uh, cousins, essentially cousins of, of Jesus, or would appear to have been cousins of Jesus. So... The point I'm trying to make here is it's absolutely clear that, um, uh, to me it's absolutely clear that our Blessed Mother had only one son, Jesus, our Lord. Well, they took offense at Jesus because, well, where did he get all this? A prophet is not without honor except in his native place, Jesus says. And this is the interesting part. And the word is able. He was not able to perform any miracles there apart from curing a few sick people by laying hands on them. That's amazing. He was not able, and that's the word in Greek, dunatai, uh, uh, he, was, he was unable to think that Jesus, God, the Son of God, was not able to do something. Yes, he limited himself for our sake. And this is a very important um, 
lesson for us, I think, because we are able to limit God by our lack of trust. God allows us to limit him. And it's a very important thing to understand that you and I can limit God because he chooses to be limited. He has such respect for our freedom. Those people who do not believe in free will, I don't know how they deal with these passages. But God created us to be free because freedom is the one great necessity of love. If I have to love you, I cannot love you. If I'm forced to love you, love then becomes, uh, is not an option. So uh, I think that's important to notice. Well, let's go to the first reading, which is fascinating here. Um, this is Second Samuel, the 24th chapter. Um, the Lord's, I'm looking at the first verse of the 21st chapter, uh, which is, uh, uh, the 24th chapter, which is, I don't think in the reading, the Lord's anger against Israel flared again, and he incited David against them. This is a very strange verse of scripture. The Lord's anger flared against Israel, um, why did his anger flare against Israel? Well, they had not, over the course of the, the years, they had not obeyed him. you got to remember, this is happening 400 years. 400 years after the exodus and the invasion of the Holy Land by, by Israel. So... David takes a census, and the problem with the census is that David wanted to know what he could count on in terms of revenue and military uh, uh, military uh, power. Uh, he wanted to know how many people there were that he could draft. In other words, he was not depending on the Lord. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the anger of the Lord flared against Israel and especially then against uh, or the, the, how to look at this. If you're a parent, if you're a father, especially father or mother, your sinfulness affects your whole family. You are the fulcrum of grace uh, in your family. You are the source of, of conversion. And if God is going to strike the family, he's going to strike dad and mom. Uh, we see elsewhere that he has struck the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. So this relationship between uh, those who are led and those who lead, those who are in authority and those who are under authority, is very important. We don't tend to like that in our current age. We are rather anti-authoritarian and, in effect, lawless. So, well, David had had uh, um, uh, taken the census, and a prophet comes in and says, uh, uh, "Well, you got you got trouble, David. This was Gad, G A D, or I suppose it was pronounced God, but it wasn't." God, as we will say, Gad, Gad the prophet. He was a seer. He he saw. He was the old word for a prophet. Go tell David, I'm offering you three options. Choose one of them. And three years of famine come upon the land. Uh, 
three months of fleeing from your enemy or three days of plague in your land. Choose one. And David says, I'm greatly distressed, but let us fall into the hand of God, whose mercy is great, rather than into human hands. So David chose the plague. I mean, this is, this is, uh, I mean, this is, this is vintage David. Uh, let me see if I can wheedle out of this. A man after God's own heart? Well, at the time of the wheat harvest, uh, the plague broke out among the people, and 70,000 of the people in the whole land died. But when the angel stretched forth his hand to Jerusalem, the Lord changed his mind about the calamity. He said to the angel, causing the destruction enough, now stay your hand. Um, the angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. Verse 17, when David saw the angel, he said to the Lord, it is I who have sinned, I, the shepherd, who have done wrong. These are sheep. What have they done? Strike me and my father's family. So David returns to being the man after God's own heart. He starts out pretty badly, but then he realizes this is terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible person. He's capable, again, of repentance. And this is a very significant passage because what we're going to see is uh, 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 the prophet Gad went to David and said, go set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. Oh, dear. This is, this is hugely significant. Have you ever seen a threshing floor? I actually have. I was driving through Spain in the hills years ago. And I saw a th some Spanish farmers thresh who were driving by and there's mountain roads. And we saw some fa Spanish farmers grinding out or, or threshing grain. There's this ox and he's pulling a sort of sledge. And on it, this guy's sitting and he's got about a bunch of rocks on this, this sort of sled thing. And we jammed on, I jammed on the brakes, jumped on, started taking pictures. And I said, what are you doing? We're getting a machine to do this next year. And I thought, I, I just thought this was so amazing. What you do is you find a, a flat, rocky outcropping. And um, <clears throat> it's got to be in a high place with a prevailing wind. And you get an ox and you trample out the grain with the ox and with a, a sledge following the ox. And it crushes the, the, the outer, the outer uh, chaff around the, the harder inner seed of the grain. And thank goodness uh, that he kills all the germs because this ox is walking on it and occasionally eating some of it. Well, when you're done threshing the grain and you've pretty much broken it all up, you take these big winnowing fans that look like, you know, the things that you get in the pizza oven, and you 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 pile all of the chaff and the grain into a big pile, and then you throw it up in the air. And gradually, with the prevailing wind, two piles form, the smaller, heavier pile of the grain and the bigger pile of the, the chaff, the outer husk of the grain. And then you just burn the chaff and you store the grain. That's how you thresh. And this was the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. Now, he was a Jebusite. He was a Canaanite. They should have been expelled from the land 400 years ago, but Israel didn't do it. There were still Jebusites living in Jerusalem uh, at this time, and they seemed to live in peace and in harmony with the Jews. 
uh, practicing their own religion into which the Jews and the Israelites had fallen. This is why God was wroth with them. They had not uh, eliminated paganism from the land. And they were they were worshiping kind of, well, indiscriminately. So I suspect that's what the Lord was unhappy about. Now, moving along here, this threshing floor, David goes up to buy it. And Arana says, oh, no, my Lord, I will give you my threshing floor. This was a, a flat rock up the hill from the old city of Jerusalem. It was the high point of the, of the, of the area of, of the old Jebusite city, which David had made his capital. And uh, it's still there to this day. And it is a flat rock underneath the dome of the rock, which is a Muslim shrine, uh, which is kind of iconic when you see pictures of Jerusalem. The Holy of Holies was built on this threshing floor, apparently. Uh, there's good evidence uh, that, that, in fact, there's a flattened spot in this in this big flat rock under the dome of the rock that is the exact proportions of the Ark of the Covenant. It was the resting place of the Ark, most probably. Now, let's put this together. The center of Israelite worship and the center of the temple was a barren rock. It wasn't covered over. It wasn't given a nice floor. It was it was a barren rock. The floor of the Holy of Holies was a, a, a flat, exposed rock called the foundation stone, the Ebn Shatia. And the center place, the focus of Jewish worship, was a place where grain was prepared to be made into bread. Are you getting the symbolism here? The center of Catholic worship is bread that becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Mary. The temple itself is a foreshadowing of the Eucharist. I think that's truly amazing and truly beautiful. So, uh, um, David, when I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but David, when he around us said, no, I'll give you this threshing floor. He said, no, I'll pay for it. I will not offer to the Lord something that costs me nothing. And he bought the, the threshing floor. The temple was built over it by his son, Solomon. At the heart for 3000 years, this idea of the threshing floor, uh, and John mentions it again, the threshing floor uh, that is at the heart of our faith and was at the heart of the worship of Israel. Uh, John the Baptist mentions this when he says uh, that his threshing, uh, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will separate the grain from the chaff and he will burn up the chaff. You know, uh, this idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit Oh, it's a wonderful experience, and it's not an experience at all. <laughs> the, to be to be washed over by the Holy Spirit involves crushing and separation and burning. <laughs> and believe me, uh, uh, that old Pentecostal song, melt me, mold me, fill me, use me, eh, think of the words, that if God is going to move in your life, there will be crushing and there will be separation of the chaff, the useless from the useful, and there will be the burning of the useless, of the chaff. 
powerful stuff here if you really understand what God's saying. All right. With that said, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with letters and um, uh, we'll, 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 we'll muddle through. I'm going to try to see if I can make my computer cooperate again. Oh, 888-914-9149. We'll get your call somehow. 888-914-9149. We'll be right back, hopefully. Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash forester, an Illinois life insurance society not available in all states. We just keep on keeping on. We just keep on keeping on. Many things that we have loaded, but they too will soon admit that there's still a lot of Hello. I have been wanting to mention this for ages and keep forgetting it. You know, Father Rocky is doing these wonderful uh, uh, Eucharistic videos. Uh, um, to we're, we're in preparation mode for the, uh, uh, the the Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis in July. I, I certainly am planning on being there. So the... Uh, um, Let's see here. Where, I can't find it. But there was one that Father Rocky did about silence in church. And that is, of course, one of my great axes to grind. You know, and he gave good reasons for silence in church. And I was just one line, be still and know that I'm God. You know, we are so ignorant of the divinity of God. We take it. I know that sounds odd, but we take it so for granted. And then there's another one. God is still in control of the weather. That's really good. So look at those, those wonderful, uh, um, Eucharistic encounter videos that Father Rocky does. And also, uh, we're going to be having a Lenten lessons. Um, uh, how can a uh, dear voice in my head? I have the auxiliary voice in my head, young Thomas. Uh, how, how can they get those, those, those Lenten lessons. Are you live? Oh, be live. Be live. Okay. There we go. The Lenten lessons were coming at you. Yes. I'm going to grab that information so we can get the link up um, just so we can okay. have that for everybody. Um, but honestly, go to relevantradio.com. We'll be starting those Lenten lessons here. Sign up. Um, it's right on the front page. You can go ahead and sign up. And really powerful lessons. Um, they really are. That. They really are. It's good stuff. So, all right. Well, let's have that said. Let's go to letters. Okay. Um, this is from Joe. All right. Um, I'm listening to Bible in a Year, and Leviticus, Leviticus keeps referring to fat of various animals and sin sacrifices. I'm almost positive that fat means meat, not actual fat or entrails. No, it means fat. <laughs> it, let me pull this up. It's, it's great stuff. It means fat. Uh, um, the, the, hold on. It belongs to the Lord. We are people who 
are squeamish about things. Okay, let me see. Um, the priest, this is Leviticus 3.16, the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering and a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. Uh, and let me look up the word in Hebrew. Let me, let me, the, the chaleb, <laughs> chaleb is the word for fat, and it means fat. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Remember when they tried to to they developed a pork that was very lean, and called it the new uh, the new white meat or the other white meat. It tasted like wood, and still does. Oh, we don't want fat in the diet. Fat, that's that's the vehicle of flavor in foods. And a prime rib that was lean, well, you wouldn't really want one. So we we get all hinky about fat. No. The fat was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And, you know, they were not as squeamish as we are. So the word fat here in Hebrew means fat. I hope that answers your question, John. Or Joe, rather, not John. Joe. Oh, sorry about that. Oi. Let's see here. Oh, it's the Bible. I'm not making this up. I was at Mass this weekend, and during the Eucharistic prayer, our pastor had us repeat we praise you, we bless you, we thank you, after we said certain prayers. I've never experienced this before at Mass, and I'm wondering, is it simply a Eucharistic prayer I've never heard of, and is it legit? I'm going to admit something that I I, I, I sh should be embarrassed by. I have no idea. When I was a boy and the woolly mammoth roamed, there was one Eucharistic prayer, the Roman canon, and then we went to four I don't think I have ever used the fourth one. It's a rather long prayer. Uh, lovely, but people start growling about halfway through of it. Uh, uh, I, I, you know, I use, I use the first prayer and sometimes the second prayer and sometimes the third prayer. That's about it. And then there's all sorts of more, uh, um, prayers. So if someone is listening who knows which canon that comes from, I would love to know that myself. So, the Reverend Know-It-All, you stumped him. Congratulations. Let me go to another letter. I'll try and find that out for you, though. My young daughter asked me if Mary knew that Jesus was God. Oh, I, I answered that one. If Mary knew that Jesus was God, why was she worried? Because she immaculately conceived, shared in all of our difficulties, and freely um, gave herself over to the difficulties of motherhood. Okay. Um uh, let me see. I think I answered that one. I forget to, to uh, undo them. Okay. Uh, let's see. All right. That one is... Hmm. All right. Let me find... A... Okay. This is from Anne. I have a translation question about Genesis 4-9, where Cain asked God if his brother, if he's his brother's keeper. I believe that phrase is derived from the King James Version, posed in 1611. What does the Hebrew translate into English? I'm sure it's Shomer, but we're going to look that up. That's uh, Genesis 4-9. Okay. Genesis 4-9. Okay. There we go. Okay. Okay. This is, the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now let's click the little Hebrew button. 
Okay. Ah, I was right. <laughs> oh, I feel better now, since I didn't know about the canon. It's Shomer. It means to guard, to keep. Uh, someone who keeps the Sabbath is is uh, uh, Shabbat Shomer, uh, uh, a guardian of the Sabbath. It means it means a guardian. Uh, that's essentially what it means um, uh, to guard the Sabbath or keep the Sabbath. That's the idea. Am I my brother's guardian? Uh, that that's uh, the, the the meaning of the word here. So um, I hope that answers the question. Uh, Moving along, let me click the little erase button so I don't answer that one twice. Okay. Okay. This is interesting. I'm going to kind of, um, this is uh, a, a conversation here. Recently, this is a letter that I already read. Recently, I went to daily mass. The priest handed me the copper plate that holds the Eucharist, uh, expecting that I would reach in and pick up the host, which I did. Um, I don't want to get him in trouble, but I don't think it's right. He's a foreign priest, and I wonder if it's just what he does. And so I texted Steve or emailed Steve that that I said, have you talked to him about it? <laughs> I've not talked to him about it. It seems kind of awkward, but I could say something. I wasn't sure if it's allowed. No, it's not allowed. It's, it's not. Uh, it's up to him. He must give you communion, uh, Steve. Now, let's look at this. There may be a good reason he's not doing it. He may have a problem, uh, a muscular problem in the hand with which he should distribute communion. It could be. And in that case, he's not doing anything inappropriate. Uh, he's doing his best. But if it's a statement of liturgy, this is better. You know, when we used to do that in the seminary, it was, it was a denial of the sacredness of the priesthood. In other words, the priest isn't special. He doesn't give you communion or take communion. I will never forget uh, the dean of studies who shortly thereafter left the priesthood. Um, it was before there was communion in the hand, and he's just zipping along. Uh, uh, body of Christ, body of Christ. I, I think it might have been the old, the old formula still. Body of Christ. And a host fell on the floor, and he said to this uh, seminary, pick it up, it's yours. <sighs> He was completely denigrating the real presence. He was making a statement by that. So if this priest is making a statement about how the priesthood is not significantly different in its ontological state, in its state of being, um, then he's doing something wrong. If he's got a muscular problem in his thumb, he's not doing something wrong. So that's why you want to talk to him. And it, it's not appropriate. The priest is supposed to give you communion. The idea is that we receive communion. And the priest stands at Mass in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, who gives us his body and his blood. That's the symbolism of it. So, Steve, I would talk to him. You know, you don't want to, you know, so it's, uh, what, what's the worst that could happen? Um, you know, he could say... Uh, um, no, I, I just think it's better to that you would give communion to yourself. Say, Father, that's not the, what you say. Then, is Father, I have a right to the mass in the in the in the Roman Catholic rite. Uh, uh, I have a right to the Catholic mass, not not a mass that you make up. You know, when priests change the words and they they improve on something, they're violating the rights of the faithful. You have the right to go to the 
mass, uh, the ordinary mass of the Roman Catholic Church. You have that right. And and if a priest uh, decides to change the prayers that are in the in the in the uh, missal, well, he doesn't have the right to do that. He's not he's not giving you what the church has decided uh, we're doing at this time. So I think that's very important to understand that. Okay, let me see. I think we got time. No, we do we with a little time. No, let's go to a break. We'll come back with our word of the day. And uh, the phones are open, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Today, we'd like to thank Tom, who's listening in Illinois, for donating his 1978 Slickcraft boat. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. If I had a hammer, I'd a hammer in the morning, I'd a hammer in the evening. Oh, this is good. <laughs> oh, young Thomas is on his game today. Priests improvising mass according to their own personal tastes. He did, I did it my way. And now, if I had a hammer, because we're going to the word of the day. And the word of the day is carpenter. In the text, the word is tecton. Uh, 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 tecton is a... Uh, uh, the interpretation here, a craftsman, a carpenter, an artisan. Um it has become fashionable to talk about Jesus as a stonemason. Uh, the word d d implies wood, uh, apparently. But what it really means is someone in the building trades, a construction worker, a, a skilled construction worker. Uh, so Jesus was a skilled construction worker, but a construction worker nonetheless. And uh, But the interesting part of this is that, that uh, I think I might have mentioned this the other day, that... <clears throat> Uh, the the they talked about the architect of the universe the architecton which means the main craftsman who uh, who built the universe and the main craftsman the architect on the architect of the universe became the fixit man of nazareth the tecton so i think that's a lovely thing to think that uh the builder of the universe became the builder of of things in nazareth it's just you know, uh, one of these guys, I, I, they're all over the place where I live. People who, you know, can you do plumbing? Yep. Can you do wiring? Mm-hmm. Can you, can you do woodwork? Oh, sure. And, you know, they, they're, they just, they're, they're craftsmen and they're good at this. So there, tecton. If you want a translated carpenter, you may. I'm not so sure about stonemason though. All right. Moving along, let us now go to phone calls. This is smart. Maxwell smart. <laughs> no, it's Grace. <laughs> Grace, what can I do for you from from Mission Viejo, California? Good afternoon, Father. Good. What can I on? Yes. Yeah, quick question on: Should we use on Bibles that are not listed on USCCB, like the NLT, the New Living Translation, right? Yeah. Well, uh, um, you know. Uh, I, I don't know that it's a problem, um, you know, that, that uh, um, the, the, the New Living Translation, 
is uh, you know we're always attempting to to um, to make the scriptures more contemporary, and um, I think that that no, that's not a bad thing. You know that that if you were using it at mass, no, we use the translation that the bishops provided mass. But if you're studying scripture, that's not a bad one to use. You know, I, I wouldn't choose it, but the teacher who's teaching the Bible study. Uh, may have chosen it for a reason, and I don't think it's—I don't think it's really problematic. Um, uh, does that help a little? Yeah. Thank you so much, Father. Have a good day. Oh, and God day. bless you. Thank you. Uh, um, you know that that um, there are better and worse translation. Uh, the New Living Translation is well. Uh, some people think it's kind of a paraphrase. In other words, uh, it's, it's not very exact a translation. Um, it's an attempt at, uh, uh, sort of making the old living Bible a little more accurate. But, you know, some people still think it's, it's, uh, too, too, um, too much, uh, uh, of a paraphrase. For instance, here, verse, eight of, uh, uh, is this, is this Job? And the Lord said to Satan, this is literal. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on earth, blameless and upright man. The living Bible said, the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth, a good man who fears God and will have nothing to do with evil. And the new living translation, then the Lord said to Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and will have nothing to do with evil. Um, so it's a little better than the old living Bible, but it's, it's still kind of paraphrasy. I, I don't know if that helps at all, but you know, there you go. Okay. Let us now go to, um, paraphrasy. Yeah, you heard it here first. Uh, Letty from Los Angeles, what can I do for you? Hi, Father Simon. Uh, I have a question regarding the, the book of Samuel on uh, uh, the first book, uh, chapter 19, uh, where Daniel joins Sa uh, Samuel and Rama, and everybody mm -hmm. is prostrating, everybody is prophesying. Uh, can you tell yes. me what that's about? <laughs> it sounds like a really good uh, prayer meeting. Uh, what's the exact verse? It's the 19th chapter of of First uh, Samuel, right? Yeah, the 19th Samuel, chapter, 19. Uh, and it starts on um, verse 18. And it, it only goes up to verse twenty, but it's, it's a very it's like yeah. a paragraph long. Yeah, it's it's uh, well. Let, let me let me let me read this because I think people will be amazed. This is uh, Elijah. It's first. It's first. Oh, I have First Kings here. It's First Samuel. No, 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 we're looking Elijah. at, aren't we? Yes. Yes. Yeah. First Samuel. Okay. Uh, okay. Let me pull this up. First Samuel nineteen. Uh, verse 18. Well, when David had fled, made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, so he sent men to capture them. But they saw a group of prophets prophesying. With Samuel standing there is their leader. The Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul kept sending men, and they just kept prophesying. What's going on there? Well, remember, when we think of prophecy, we think of, of foretelling the future. And that's not what prophecy is about. Prophecy is speaking for God. Uh, the, the Spirit of God enters you, and you speak 
spontaneously what God seems to be saying. We read at a number of places in First Samuel and Second Samuel that that prophets were called seers, S E E R S, those who see. And uh, the best way I can describe this is uh, referring to oh I can't think of it, Honey from the Rock. Oh, oh, who wrote Honey from the Rock? The mind, my mind is going. Um, Honey from the Rock. He's a Jewish convert. I, I do want to give him credit. And <laughs> he's actually someone I count as a friend. Um, Honey from the Rock. Um, but my mind is, is kind of frozen. Honey from the Rock. Nope. Nope. Honey from the Rock. Roy Showman. Why? How can I forget the name Roy Showman? Roy is a wonderful, wonderful author, a great man. Uh, he's a convert from Judaism. And Honey from the Rock describes his his uh, conversion, I believe. And what he said was that, that the veil between this world and the real world, the, the unseen but very real world, became very thin for him. And I, the Blessed Mother was much involved in this in this day of, of vision uh, that had to do with his conversion. So a seer is someone who penetrates that veil that separates us from the wider reality of, of the of the unseen the in the unseeable world and so these guys are prophesying the spirit of god is on them and they're they're just glorifying god and 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 just saying what they see and hear and and that's apparently what was going on and uh when these men sent from saul uh came up to them they were also struck by the holy spirit and and I remember one person saying when he went into a good old Pentecostal meeting, everybody was going crazy, so he went crazy too. That's, I believe, what, what was going on. Does that help a little? Uh, yes, it does. Thank you so much. So basically, he yeah. sent people over there to go drag David back, but they yeah, are yeah. Uh, enlightened with the Lord, and no matter who he sent, it didn't work. It didn't work. They would they would meet up with these prophets, and then they would start glorifying God and prophesying and talking about the wonders of the Lord that they beheld. Exactly. You got it. It sounds very, right. very odd. Well, there you go, but I think that's what's going on. All right. Well, God bless. Yes, we have an interesting religion. We really do. All right. Let's go to Rebecca from Minneapolis, Minnesota. What can I do for you, Rebecca? Hi, Father Simon. I just had a question about a certain passage in Exodus where Moses had just returned to Egypt to free the Israelites, and God told him that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart so yes. that Pharaoh would refuse to let the Israelites go, but then he was going to punish Pharaoh for refusing to let them go. So yes. my question is, why would God harden his heart and then punish him for that? Well, because that's what Pharaoh wanted. Pharaoh wanted it, wanted his heart to be hard. And God said, okay, if that's what you want. There's a wonderful saying regarding this passage, that the same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. In other words, when God intervenes in our life, he manifests who we have chosen to be. If I've chosen to be hard-hearted, God says, okay, you want to be hard-hearted? I'll harden your heart. And, but if our prayer is, Lord, soften my heart, I'll say, all right, I'll soften it. You see, we, we, God all, I believe God always answers prayer. 
it's just he's he gives us what we're praying for, not what we think we're praying for. Uh, you know, I, I want to win the lottery. Well, in other words, I'm praying to be miserable and to have people who say they're my friend but are not my friend. All they want is my money. <laughs> and God will give us that in one way or other. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that that's really true. God gives us what we are praying for, not what we think we're praying for. And Pharaoh wanted his heart to be hard. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. Thanks. I'm honored that you listen. Let us now go to Therese from Waukesha, Wisconsin. Good afternoon, Father Simon. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm happy to. I've been to, yeah, I've been to several masses in my parish where um, at the distribution of the Eucharist, the priest will sit down and let the distributors distribute the Eucharist. And I've always mm-hmm. wondered why they do that. Is that okay? If he, this priest is old and infirm and has a, a trouble walking and would would not be able to distribute communion, that would be just fine. But what's probably going on is he's making a statement that, that this is... Uh, uh, you know, that there's no distinction between clergy and faithful, and we don't believe that. And thus it is wrong. Mm-hmm. I remember a woman, we had, you know, people would come up from the congregation to help with communion, and there was one woman who would come up in diaphanous gowns, and another woman who would come up in a sweatsuit. And so I had them all wear a kind of uniform, those graduation robes with a, a cowl in the liturgical colors. And this, the woman with the diaphanous gowns, You've ruined my ministry. And I want to say, madam, it's not your ministry. You're an extraordinary minister. If there are priests and deacons who can do it, they're the ordinary ministers of communion. You're extraordinary. You're there when you're needed. It's not your ministry. And a lot of people don't understand that that's my ministry. No, it isn't. It's not your ministry. It's the ministry of the priest, the deacon, and if the bishop is present. And we're grateful for the help if we need it. No, he, he should, if he is physically able to distribute communion, it's his job, and he's shirking it. There. Does that help? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. I yes. appreciate and, that. And ask, ask him why he's doing it. Ask Teresa, yeah. ask him, why do you do that? Ask him I why will. he does it. I will. Yeah, why I not? In a loving, kind way. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That that's uh I will. Yeah, that that's uh was popular when I was young to denigrate the ordained role and now we have very few priests. Oh well. Let's go to Ben from Minnesota. Are you are you with us, Ben? What can I do for you? Yes, I am. As a Catholic, how how do I understand um what it means to be saved by works or by faith? I, mean, I want to believe. Ah, oh, 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 dear. This is a doctorate. I'll try to squeeze it into three minutes. Are you ready? Yes, yes. St. Paul says it is clear that we are not saved by works of the law, but by grace. The phrase works of the law appears in two places, the writings of St. Paul and in the Qumran documents. And there is a scroll called some works of the law. If a dead rodent falls into a clay pot... And the pot must be broken. It cannot be purified. However, if you are pouring water from a clay pitcher, can the uncleanness of the bowl, because of the dead rodent, uh, go up the stream of water and pollute the pitcher? The Qumran loonies said yes. The Pharisees said no. And Jesus and Paul said, who cares? Get a life. Uh, that, that's a wor- And this is a work of the law. 
when St. Paul says we are not saved by works of the law, he's saying we're not saved by the minutiae of, of the Torah, you know, not eating pork, not touching dead rodents, that sort of thing. Uh, we're saved by grace through faith. We Catholics believe it. Grace is what God gives us in 24 hours a day to conform us to the image of Christ. And we accept it with faith. That is with trust. That's what the word faith means, trust. The difficult circumstances of our life come to us as gifts from God to conform us to the image of Christ. And I can say no to grace. That's where the reformers disagreed with Catholics. They said, you can't say no to God's grace. God's grace will overpower you. We don't believe that. St. John says he gave them grace upon grace. In other words, God calls you, gives you a grace to do something, and you say, yes, I will do it. He gives you a greater grace. And you say yes to that, God gives you a greater grace. If you say no to grace at any point, the Lord says, well, okay, you don't want to follow? You don't have to. We're saved by grace through faith. In other words, what God gives in 24 hours a day to conform us to the image of Christ is grace. It's his gift. And we accept it through trust. Does that help? Um, well, it says in James that um, uh, a faith without works is a dead faith. Now, it's how dead, do you, how do yes. How counteract? Yes, because if I say I have faith, I trust God, but I'm going to go shoot somebody. I'm not trusting God. You see, if you understand the word faith means trust. The word mean, I believe means I trust. Believe and, and faith. The Greek word means trust. And if I'm trusting God, I'm going to obey him. He says, give to the poor. I'll trust him. I don't think I have enough money for me, but God said, give to the poor. I'll trust him. You see, we're saved by God's gift, and we receive that gift of God by trusting him. And, and the commandments, the Ten Commandments, are gifts. They, they are grace. God tells us, don't commit adultery. It's not going to work out for you. Say, Jesus, I trust you. I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm going to be faithful to my wife. Does that help? Yeah. I, I guess there's this notion that I, I have to like prove myself to God, prove myself worthy of salvation. It, 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 what do you think of that? <laughs> No, you don't prove yourself worthy of salvation. You're not worthy of salvation. What you do is give God permission to make you look like Jesus, the obedient son of God. And how do you look like Jesus? By obeying. Son though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The hallmark of Jesus' personality was his obedience to the Father. And and that's that's what grace works in us. God's gift to us are those circumstances which allow us to trust God. And speaking of trusting God, Drew is coming up, and he does. I really think he does. 